Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 25 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, our focus is on social justice. Should Christians feed the hungry and take care of the least of these? I do want to tell you, we now have a Facebook page. Uh, The link is on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, or you can just go to Facebook. It's Facebook.com slash Bible Reading Podcast. I would invite you to go there and like and share the page so uh, that other people can find the show. That way I can become a Dark Jedi quadrillionaire or something like that. Actually, no, that's not really the goal of the show. The real goal of the show is that we would get as many people as possible into daily Bible study and Bible reading. That's the goal of the show. So if you're just picking us up today, awesome. You don't have to go back and catch up or anything like that unless you want to, unless you've got time. And then in that case, feel free. But the goal is going forward to bring as many people along with us and develop this habit of getting into the word daily. So when you like the Facebook page, when you share a post or the uh, an episode on sh- social media or something like that, you're inviting other people to join us in our exploration of the word of God. And that's an awesome thing. So check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Bible Reading Podcast. We've got a Twitter as well and all sorts of things to connect with. Today's reading is in Genesis 26. It's about Isaac and Rebecca. Esther chapter 2, where Esther becomes the Persian queen. Acts 25, with Paul is still on trial. He appeals to Caesar. And Matthew 25, Jesus is called to the least of these. We're going to see something, uh, I don't want to say funny is the right word. It's kind of funny, I guess, looking back into history, but it's also a head scratcher. And that is, once again, Isaac, the son of Abraham, is going to do something weird in terms of his wife. Now, I believe one of the most important parts of being a father is to help your kids avoid your biggest mistakes. I've got five kids. I made a lot of mistakes in my life. I want to help them avoid some of those dumb mistakes. I'll give you an example of one. When I was eight, It was a rainy day. There was a large cable laying across the road. Um, I was playing with my friend, and we came upon this cable, and the insulation was off of it. It was a metal cable. I guess I was just a really, really dumb kid. And I picked this cable up, laying across the road, and I don't know if you've ever picked, uh, like, touched something with a lot of voltage in it. This thing had, like, 750 volts, or just some ridiculous number, because it was uh, stealing power from a generator across the street to power the construction of of an entire house. So crazy situation. The electricity caused my hands to clamp down and it started bouncing me around on the street. I couldn't let go. Shout out to my friend Bo Armistead who was there with me and actually saved my life that day by kicking me and whatever. I don't think he pushed me because the shock would have gotten him too, but he kicked me off of the wire somehow, some way. Now, my kids know that story backwards and forwards. Why? Well, A, because I probably repeat my stories too much, and B, because I don't want them to grab a live electric cable. 
I mean, the hospital said I should have died, and I probably should have. It burnt like this massive hole through my hand. What a dumb thing. I don't want my kids to repeat that. Now, I don't want to sit in judgment of Abraham. He was an incredible, incredible man. He had face-to-face conversations with God. But I can't help but judge him just a little bit today. I feel like he should have set his son Isaac down a few dozen times and told him, Hey son, never tell people your wife is your sister. Because it's not going to work out really well. Now, I guess things were a little bit different back in Abraham's day. My family, we moved from Alabama to California in 2018 to pastor Valley Baptist Church in the Salinas area. By the way, if you're in Monterey or Seaside or Pacific Grove or Salinas, I want to invite you to come to our church. It's a great place. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030, 320 Church Street, right across the street from the Steinbeck Library. Awesome people there will welcome you. But my family of seven moved from Alabama to Salinas uh, almost two years ago, in in mid-2018. I want to be straight with you. I feel like God has blessed me with a beautiful wife. I love her very much. That said, I never once thought that I'd better tell the men of Salinas that she was my sister in order to avoid their killing of me. I don't know, maybe I'm just naive and somebody will come along tomorrow and kill me and try to take my wife. Or maybe, more likely, there's a better way to handle things when you think your wife is super attractive and that somebody might try to kill you for her. I don't know, maybe you should learn martial arts or something. Something, something other than telling everybody, oh, her? That's just my sister. Feel free to marry her as long as you don't kill me. Come on, Isaac. Come on, Abraham. It seems like we should know these things. Well, the last two podcasts ran long, and if I keep talking ridiculously, this one's going to run long too. Our goal is each day to keep each podcast in the, you know, 30-minute range or so, give or take of 10 minutes. Today's episode, then, is not going to represent a deep dive into what is a critically important question. Instead, it's going to be a beginning And we're going to mostly let the Word of God do the talking and just dip our feet in the water of this discussion, knowing that since this is a daily podcast, Lord willing, and it continues the whole year, we will keep returning to the important question of the day, is social justice biblical? That's our big question. And the answer is yes and no. And I suspect roughly zero of you are satisfied with such an answer, nor should you be. But before we unpack it too much, let's go ahead and get to our first scripture passage of the day. This is Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. At that time, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, 
No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed, so I was afraid, and I went off and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And the master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant, if you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will be more than enough." He will have more than enough, but from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or or a stranger or or without clothes or sick or in prison and, and not help you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I hope the impact of Jesus' words there has shaken you, and I hope it has shaken me. It should. Here he is saying quite clearly and unmistakably, if you take his words at face value, and you should, those who do not take care of the least of these will be banished to hell, and those who do take care of the least of these will inherit the eternal kingdom of God. What about the gospel, I hear you saying? We aren't saved by works, I hear you shouting, and you're absolutely right. Those who hear the gospel and follow Jesus in wholehearted faith will be saved, and that salvation will be by grace and not by works. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So how in the world... Can Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and Ephesians 2, 8, 9 both be true? There's a contradiction here, right? And I don't believe so. The answer is that if you are truly saved by grace through wholehearted faith in Jesus, you will, you must, you must, it's a command. It's the most, uh, it is the most serious command in the scriptures, honestly, one of them, because Jesus says it's, it's, uh, life and death. It's heaven and hell. Like, that's not an exaggeration. Jesus puts this command or these series of commands in the context of heaven and hell. It doesn't get more serious than that. So, if you are truly saved by grace through wholehearted faith in Jesus, you will minister to him by taking care of the least of these, because God will give you a new heart. This ministry is indispensable to a Christian. We can't live without it. Taking the words of Jesus here seriously and literally, as we should, all Christians, you and me, must be engaged in the ministry of seeing to the needs of the least. No exceptions. So, that probably means that I believe that social justice is biblical, right? And the answer, again, it depends on what you mean by social justice. If you mean by that phrase that Christians in the church should take care of the needs of the least of these, then you and I are in wholehearted agreement. We absolutely should. We take care of them by feeding them, by clothing them, by showing hospitality to them and serving them with the same love and respect that we would show to Jesus, the King of Kings. We don't serve them in a patronizing way. Oh, you poor dear, you're 
homeless or you poor thing, you don't have any food. I'll take care of your needs, you you pathetic little creature. No, no, no. We serve them in the same way that we would, with the same level of respect that we would show to Jesus, because that's the parallel Jesus is drawing here. Because according to him, when we are ministering to the least of these in some realistic and 100% true way, we are ministering to him. Now, it should be noted, however, as many of you know, the term social justice is quite loaded, and it means different things to different people. It is not a term found in the Bible. It is a fairly new phrase in the English language, and it's kind of become a buzzword over the past few decades, and especially the past few years. I can find one use of the term dating back to the 1700s, and I'm not sure. In fact, I don't believe they were using the term social justice the same way we do in the 2000s. There's a smattering of usage of social justice in the 1800s, but the concept of social justice didn't really begin to take shape along with that phrase until the 1900s. If by social justice it is meant that the church and Christians should accept and celebrate behavior that is clearly unbiblical, then the answer is then that social justice is not biblical. So, Think about this. The Bible is absolutely opposed to any form of racism, and especially racism against races in a particular society that might be considered among the least of these. I'm going to say some controversial things here. Just bear with me. Absolutely all lives matter. But in a majority white society, I'm actually pretty comfortable with the message that black lives matter, especially considering that this country and many churches proclaimed the opposite of that for centuries. I've been studying the Tulsa race, quote, the quote, race riots. Uh, I think it happened in the early 1900s recently. It's mind-blowing what happened there. Basically, a group of angry white people with the cooperation of the police and maybe, 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 big maybe, maybe even the National Guard basically just wiped out a neighborhood, an entire large neighborhood of African Americans over a disagreement. And that's putting it mildly. Dozens, if not hundreds of people were killed Hundreds of homes were burned to the ground. It was absolute savagery. And that kind of thing, although on the extreme scale, has been repeated to African Americans all across the United States of America for a long, long time. And I can understand why there would be a mantra in society that black lives matter because for so long people they they didn't matter i've really made it a diligent study of church history especially in uh, the civil rights era and the civil war era um how Many churches, especially in the South, because like I told you, I'm from Alabama, how churches in the South treated African Americans and what they said to African Americans. And it's shameful, shameful. 
Now, we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. I am a big fan in a lot of ways of Martin Luther King Jr., an amazing speaker, one of the most quotable men who have ever lived. I love much of what he stood for. My only, I guess I have two big struggles with Martin Luther King Jr. One is there's the very real possibility that he was a womanizer who was not at all faithful to his wife. And that's unjustifiable no matter what the reasons are. Um, The second is, in a lot of ways, his theology was a little bit liberal. But when you actually study why, the reason very likely why Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology was a little on the deviating from the Bible side, in some cases, not in every case, in some cases, is because conservative quote, biblical seminaries wouldn't let him in because he was a black guy. Now, if that doesn't make your heart bleed with tears, I'm not sure what could. The idea that seminaries that are there to train the people of God for ministry would bar the door to black people and other minorities is an affront to the gospel. It is an affront to biblical truth. It's a horror story. And it happened, I, I guess it's happened in my lifetime because I'm that old. Um, it's a tragedy. And, and if African Americans want to say, hey, our lives matter, they absolutely do. Everybody else's lives matter too, but yours in particular matter. I get that. Another illustration, all lives matter in Canada, but French Canadians and First Nations People matter in particular in Canada. Those are two groups in Canada that have come under some level of racial persecution over the years. So why do they matter in particular? Not because they're better or superior to other Canadians, but because they are closer to being the least of these that Jesus has called his people to minister to and reach out to. All lives matter in my city and in your city, but we are called by Jesus to a particular ministry and focus on the lives who are hungry, in prison, strangers, foreigners, and those without basic possessions like clothing, the least and the marginalized. We are called to strangers and foreigners. And by the way, you might say, well, well, what what do you mean strangers and foreigners? The word there in the Greek where Jesus calls us to take care of foreigners slash strangers is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, xenos. We get the word xenophobia from it, the fear of foreigners, the fear of aliens, not flying saucer aliens, people from other country aliens. And that word in biblical terms can mean a stranger that you don't know. And it often means a foreigner. And in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus calls us to a particular focus on taking care of foreigners and loving them and serving them because they can be part of the least of these. And let me be very, very clear. Least is not a statement of value or worth or dignity or beauty or intelligence or anything like that. I guess it's a statement of privilege. Privilege is not merely about skin color, but about wealth and ability versus disability and and many other complex things. Before I recorded the show tonight, I was reading through a Twitter thread earlier 
in which many people who have various physical disabilities were brokenhearted because they weren't being well understood in their longing to have equal access to services like Uber and Lyft and that sort of thing. We in the church should be honestly at the forefront in terms of compassion for these kind of issues and more, serving those who are differently abled, sacrificially, and joyfully. We would do well to remember passages like Proverbs 19.17, which says, Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he will give a reward to the lender. We'll also do well to remember passages like Leviticus 19.15, which says, Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. So, is social justice biblical? When it comes with the commands of the Word of God, it is. When it deviates from the commands of the Word of God, it is not. Social justice is not the gospel, and feeding the hungry, though commanded by God in Scripture, will not save anybody's eternal soul. We must be people of the Word of God that takes the good news of Jesus to the world. As we go, we must also be people who take care of the least of these, because that is what we are commanded to do, and that is close to the heart of Jesus, and these people are close in a special way to Jesus. Now, I need to tell you one other thing, and then we're going to be, get back into the scripture. When I was a young minister in the mid-90s, um, the first sermon I ever preached on was Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And the reason why it was the first sermon I ever preached on all those years ago, I guess that's, what is that, 25 years ago, is because I quote, found that verse, and it blew me away, that passage, and it blew me away. I'm sure I'd heard it preached on before. I'm sure I'd heard, I'd read it before, because I'd read through Matthew several times when I, quote, found the passage, but it impacted me in the mid-90s, and I just had a, I, I was bursting with conviction. I just had to teach on it. So consider well these words of Jesus, they are important for us, and consider well a call to biblical fidelity. If we want to be followers of Jesus and his word, we will take very seriously his call to the least of these, and we will take very seriously his call to faithfulness to the word of God. And that can sometimes be two difficult things to balance, but it's very possible because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you, for I will give all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath, oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions, so Isaac steadled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She's my sister. 
for he was afraid to say, My wife, thinking, The men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. When Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, So, she really is your wife. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might die on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people could have easily slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, Whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Leave us, for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac left there, camped in the Gerar Valley, and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, and the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, This water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they argued with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him at not that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazoth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. They replied, We have seen how the Lord has been with you. We think there should be an oath between two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us, just as we have not harmed you, but have only done what was good to you, sending you away in peace. You are now blessed by the Lord. So he prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. They got up early in the morning and swore an oath to each other. Isaac sent them on their way, and they left in peace. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to tell him about the well they had dug, saying to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. When Esau was forty years old, he took his wives, as his wives, Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basimeth, daughter of Elon the Hethite. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. 
Esther chapter 2 verse 1. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young women who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had taken in, he had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. It's not really a sentence you expect to see in the Bible. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to Haram's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan, 
and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. When he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Then Paul made his defense. Neither against Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, and even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I am not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then, after Festus conferred with his council, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, There's a man here who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accuser and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear him myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, 
King Agrippa and all the men present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable for me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. That, my friends, is our section of the word of the Lord for today. As always, I pray that it blesses you that it builds you up, that it exhorts you and points you to Jesus. Good day to you and Godspeed.